Hey guys, what is going on? I've got a spectacular interview for you today. Josh Finley and Aaron Laycock of the Finley Mortgage Team. I have to start off by saying though, I made a boo-boo. I made a mistake. And this is like the dumbest mistake you can make in a podcast. I forgot to plug in my mic. I, I didn't realize until after I was done and I go to hit the recording and I realized that the audio was garbage because it was coming out of my camera, which was three feet away. So I apologize for the quality of my audio. Obviously, Josh and Aaron's audio was totally fine, but mine is, uh, well, not the greatest quality. But the content is where you're going to get your value and not from the quality of my audio. Uh, today, that we talked all about mortgages. We talked all about financing you know, real estate investment properties. I talked about getting a mortgage on tough to finance properties, how to finance land development, purchasing real estate after a bankruptcy, how to borrow private money for real estate investing, vendor take back mortgages, and lots and lots of other things. There's so many great nuggets in this. You're not going to want to miss this. Relax, grab a pen and paper, make a coffee, enjoy this interview. Guys, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you, Wayne? Yeah, thanks for having awesome. us. Awesome. Why don't we start off by you guys introducing yourselves? Yeah. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the owners of the Finley Mortgage Team, and this is Josh Finley, uh, one of the other owners. And then we have our third partner, Scott, who is here in spirit with us today. So, right on, right on. So, how did the Finley Mortgage Team get started? Why don't you guys uh, give us the, the the origin story of that? Origin story. Well, stems back to Aaron and I had met back in university, I guess. Um, you know, back in like, I think second year university, but seven years ago now, you know, we became friends and we both in different, uh, different paths in life. Aaron was in school for kinesiology. I went to school for criminal justice and law. Um, we both kind of had a different vision of where our life was going at the time. And we finished school and like many people who finished school, we had uh, some student debt and had no idea where to go. So we were like, okay, what, what do we do? Um, I ended up getting a job, uh, like a, just a, uh, a salary job, a sales job. I liked the idea of sales. Um, I didn't quite like the whole idea of being capped. I was kind of frustrated with the whole workforce. Uh, unfortunately, most of the people I worked with were just kind of complacent and I wasn't feeling it. So I was frustrated. My, my uncle, or my, our, our now our business partner, he um, had been doing this for about 16 years. So he was quite experienced in the, in the broker industry and he... Uh, reached out to us and he's like, you know, you might like this. You're really good at it. You seem like you'd be really good at it kind of thing. And it took me a little while to get into it, but I ended up deciding I was going to move into it. And that's how I guess, started becoming a broker. And then I kind of worked my way into uh, getting some experience and then moving into the investment space. And that's when uh, when Aaron you know, came in as well. And we decided to focus on what we do now. So we focus on helping real estate investors scale their rental portfolios. Um, so when essentially when the banks say, no, uh, we find solutions to help people say yes. Yeah. Yeah, we've been Oh, please let you finish. Oh, no, I was just going to say like we've uh we've been in the mortgage game for about 3 years now, but uh the Finley Mortgage team now our brokerage, we just had that open up the other day, so now we now now own the, the brokerage ourselves and it's uh which is the next business adventure really moving forward. That's awesome. So, what examples of 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 what investors get where they wouldn't be able to finance a property. Yeah, there's a couple of different profiles that we kind of cater to and, and that we see kind of as our main um, target audience and applicants. So the first is, you know, they're some sort of salaried employee or, or making guaranteed hours, um, tax proven documents, and they've been able to get two or three properties, maybe four with a bank if, if they had uh, 
the finances to be able to debt service it. Um, and now, you know, they're tapped out of the bank. Their personal debt servicing is just, it's too tight. They aren't able to move forward that way. Um, and on typical, most of the big five banks really limit you at four or five properties anyways, depending on uh, your, your portfolio. So um, they've been tapped out. They're, you know, they're looking for alternative financing and they come to us and that's when we introduce them to the uh, alternative side, like the B side lending. Um, the B side lending, you know, they have higher debt ratios. So we're able to uh, fit a little bit more debt in, whether that's, um, you know, extra credit cards, car payments, or whether that's just another mortgage, mm -hmm. um, being able to fit that in. And they have a different uh, portfolio limit. So, you know, you're really limited more to six, seven, eight on average. And then there's the odd lender on the B side who really, you know, if it fits, you know, you're, you're able to work with it. So as long as it's debt servicing and it's cash flowing well, and we can mitigate the, uh, the debt ratios with the rental income, you know, we can really fit as, you know, up to 10 properties and um, as long as it's working. So, um, and then the second portfolio or the second uh, uh, character that we really see is business for self guys. So, you know, they're making hundred, $200,000 a year, but like every good business owner, you know, they write their income down a little bit and they just don't show enough really to be able to qualify. Yeah. Um, the B side has really great business for sale products where we can use stated income um, or bank statements to be able to show just gross revenue following through there. Um, and, you know, basically it's based off of overhead. So, you know, we're looking at using anywhere from 75 to 90% of, of that income and mm -hmm. we can qualify. So, you know, instead of using $40,000 now we're qualifying at $160,000, $180,000. And that changes the whole game uh, drastically when you have that much extra income to qualify with. So huge difference. Yeah. So why is, uh, is, is debt servicing complicated? I mean, like you would assume that, you know, you've got your mortgage payments, property taxes, kind of fees, everything else. And then the rent covers that. It's cash flowing property. You know, do you want to explain why specifically, you know, some people after four properties, even with cash flowing properties, they still can't, qualify because of debt servicing yeah yeah so you're essentially looking at your total gross income right so if you have a fixed gross income with your employer and you can't increase that or it's difficult for you to increase that you can only show so much on paper so the banks underwrite at uh, if you have relaxed ratios uh 39 and 44 gds tds your gds for anyone who doesn't know is your gross debt servicing your gross debt servicing looks at your property taxes, your mortgage payment, and your heat allowance, whereas your total debt servicing looks at all of those things, plus any outside debt you have, your car payment, your line of credit payment, any student loans, things like that. Banks have specific guidelines that they need to fit in. Um, and if you have a just a max, you, you cap out on your total income, you know, there's only so much debt you can personally take on before you're just with out of the ratios. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we find a lot of people are just stuck because you, you can't, even if you have cash flowing assets, you know, you can't hike the rent up ridiculous amount, at least not in Ontario. So right. you're decently fixed when it comes to um, your total income. If you can't, if you aren't in control of your, your income as a, as a business owner. So, you know, we find a lot of people are just kind of capped at that situation. So the alternative lenders we use, look at a few things. They have relaxed ratios, meaning the ratios are a little bit higher than what a bank would normally allow. But the kicker is, and this is kind of the secret sauce, is that instead of uh, a regular bank using an ad back, meaning they'll cut 50% of the rent and they'll, they'll add it to your gross income, they'll actually take a larger portion, 75 or 80% of the rent on the oh, properties, okay. and they'll offset it instead of ad back, meaning they'll take that chunk of your rent 
and they'll use it to offset all the liabilities on the property. So they'll use it to offset the mortgage payment, the property tax payments, and the heat. So essentially, it's taking the majority of the cost away from your qualification, which allows you to qualify for way more. So if you had more cash flowing properties, you can see how it would compound over and over and over again because we're using all that income to help you qualify. Hey everybody, just wanted to let you know that on-demand coaching sessions are available. There's a link in the show notes below. If you're stuck on a problem or you need guidance, book a session and let's get you through it. Don't let uncertainty prevent you from taking action and getting the results that you want in life. Okay, back to the show. So what's the, what's the main difference between an A lender and a B lender? Like, what, are the terms different or? Yeah, terms, yeah. Uh, terms amortization rate. rate. Yeah. You can get a 30, 35 year amortization on the B side. You can get a 30 year amortization on the A side. It, it's just uninsured. Um, yeah. But uh, you get that additional potential five years on a 35 year. And rates are a little bit higher. Um, I mean, like right now we're seeing still pretty competitive rates. Like there's lenders out there who will offer you know, owner occupied rates, you know, if, if you have a, a lower loan of value, 65%, you can get a 2.54, 80% owner oc, you know, you're on 2.74, which really isn't all that crazy when you consider a rates a few years ago, were in the 3% range. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a strong rate. Um, and then when you also take a look at how you actually qualify on the A side, we have the stress test. So Bank of Canada, you know, you're stress testing at 4.79. When you take a look at a 2.74% mortgage on the B side, you're stress testing at the exact same rate you're qualifying for the A side with the offsetting and higher debt ratio. So, you know, your affordability goes up so much more because of that extra debt ratio. Um, it's quite crazy. So um, rental rates though, you know, you're looking around 2.94 to 3.6, depending on the lender and your credit score and your credit score. And so, so one of the things we keep aware is that this is a solution based product, meaning the lender actually charges you a fee. So it's not like an A bank where they, where it's going to be no cost to you to be able to get the transaction because they offer a solution. Um, it's going to cost about 1% on the lender side and usually your broker is going to charge a 1% on the broker side as well. So there is a little bit of a pay to play thing where you, if you want to find a solution, um, you know, you're going to have to pay a fee to be able to get in. Um, but you know, the thing is that you can get long terms, like three year terms on the B side, which are a decently competitive rate. So it, it, at the end of the day, we always have the conversation with our clients about cost of opportunity. Like yeah. at the end of the day, what is that $5,000 to cost to get in going to cost you if, um, you know, if you don't get in the property, like at, at the end of the day, if you're capped out anyways, you might as well just continue to buy real estate. Mm -hmm. So how can a, an investor properly plan ahead of time? How can they be proactive to, to make sure that they're avoiding, you know, going and getting some, say for example, you know, you've always been using TD. So I'm just going to go to TD and get out my mortgages until they tell me I can't. Is there a better way, you know, should they be planning ahead or? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess a couple points, like we have access to the A lenders. So if clients want to get in investing on the A side, you know, we, we definitely start them out with the best product that we can get them into. Um, now, if, if you've gone to your bank and the bank offers, uh, you know, a more competitive rate than what a monoline lender uh, may offer, which is, which is pretty normal in some circumstances, you know, like TD can offer you a little bit better rate than what first Nat or MCAP is going to. And, you know, like we, we have no problems with 
uh, clients going to their bank. You know, get the best rate possible because it's going to help you out further down the line, right? Um, in terms of that long-term planning, the big advantage with kind of working with the independent broker is we're able to, or, you know, we want to work long-term with you. So we will sit down and take a look at, you know, what does it look like at going at a 25-year AM versus a 30-year AM? If it's going to minimize your mortgage payments, that's going to make things more affordable down the road. Um, just having those initial conversations and being, you know, having that conversation with your broker and saying, look, I don't want to just get one property. I want to be able to get three, four, five, six properties. So let's structure that in a sense that's going to allow me to do that. If you're looking to burr properties, you know, what's your exit strategy look like? Are you in a five-year fix and you're going to be paying an interest rate differential in the first year potentially, or mm -hmm. are you going to variable and that's going to allow you to get out with just three months of interest? So um, on the A side, you know, it's really just looking at what the exit and minimizing exit costs. You're already getting a great rate. So you're keeping your mortgage payment as low as possible. Um, assessing your financial situation, you know, what's, what's your long-term goal? Are you looking to get into real estate investing because you want to quit your job? How do we best set up that so that in two or three years you can quit your job and still be able to get into properties? Whether that's, you know, you have some investing on the side right now that you have in a numbered company and you're paying yourself a T4 income and we can start to generate a history of income coming in so that in two years, you know, we have something else to rely on. You haven't just quit your job and now all of a sudden you're two months into real estate investing and you have no income to use. Yeah. Because um, that really puts you in a hard situation. So, you know, just talking to someone who's experienced with the investing side and, and can have that foresight to know what it's going to be like in two to three years when you want to quit your job or two to three years when you have four to five properties, what are the next steps going to be uh, moving forward? Everybody wants to quit their job and become a full-time real estate investor. That is the number one increasing job on uh, that I've seen right now is full-time real estate investor. Hey, how do I quit my job? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they're, they're in for... Um... They're in for it when they realize how hard it's going to be to get to it. But but I admire it. I admire anyone who, who wants to work that hard to 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 to, to live a better life. Yeah. Um, you know, is there any benefits um, for an investor to buy homes through their corporation as opposed to the personal? Like, how should they be looking at that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, there's definitely benefits to doing it. Um, you know, tax benefits wise, uh, qualification wise, uh, there's a handful of different reasons why somebody would purchase uh, residential property in a corporation. That being said, the majority of banks um, are not allowing people to purchase residential rental properties in a corporation. Um, most of them have turned away from it. So it's not impossible. There are banks that do it but you're going to drastically limit your ability to qualify uh, at multiple banks or have the most aggressive interest rates mm -hmm. or terms because the majority of banks are no longer allowing it. Um, mm -hmm. They were doing it for a handful of reasons. Um, one of them being obviously sheltering the qualification. So people essentially just buy properties in a corporation. So it doesn't show up on a credit bureau. Um, you know, that, that is the, probably the main reason why most banks aren't allowing it now. Like if you own commercial property, highly recommend opening a corporation and running it through because that's essentially a business at that point. You need to keep track of the income and expenses and yeah. all the things that have to do with that. But for residential property, most lenders are moving away from that now. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. But I mean, long term is, you know, when, when you've exhausted all of your personal uh, mortgages, you can't get any more mortgages. Can you switch over and start a corporation and start getting more mortgages? Is that a, is that a strategy? You, yes and no. Commercial. So yeah, commercial would be the, the way to go really buying properties residentially in a holding company. You're so, you still have to personally guarantee it. So 
if you're over leveraged on the personal side, you, you're probably still going to have problems or, or some red flags and issues getting it done residentially with a lender. Um, even though you're buying it in the holding company, obviously that holding company is is just holding the assets. It's not operating and you're not using that income um, in 98% of the situation. So you're, you're still going to have a bit of a, of a bit of an issue, but moving into that like five, six, seven and plus units, um, getting that done commercially. Now you're starting to look at, you know, does the asset self-maintain? What's the debt service coverage ratio? And they're qualifying the building based on its ability to service itself. And then you have your own personal covenants that they look at as additional strength. But from an income standpoint, um, and, and overall personal debt servicing, it's a lot easier to move into the commercial and, and have it based off the building itself. Yeah. Just, just touching on that as well. Like, um, you know, if you say perfect purchased all these assets in your personal name, um, all of those would show up on your credit bureau and you would have to debt service all those in your calculations. So opening up a corporation and purchasing an asset, it wouldn't put you in any better situation just because you do have to personally guarantee all residential real estate anyways. So it, it would it would shelter like the, obviously the qualification moving forward if you were to get a conventional loan, but you still have to qualify with all your personal debt. Gotcha. Gotcha. So um, one thing I've always been interested in and I wanted to ask you guys about is um, financing land development. Like if, you, if you're going to be buying some land and developing on it, you know, how is the financing different from that and residential? Yeah, it's a lot more capital intensive for sure. Um, depending on the land, if it's completely raw land, you know, you're, 50 cents on a dollar. So you're going to have to come up with 50% for the down payment. Um, there's a lot more reports and due diligence involved. You know, if it's, if it's service land and ready to be built on, you could maybe stretch it to 60% loan to value through some programs um, where they'll combine the acquisition and, and development portion in together. And that's residentially. Um, yeah. If there's a building on the land and you're looking to build on it, you can get a much better loan to value because you can utilize that asset. But, um, you know, in terms of the land itself, if it's raw um, and unserviced or, or serviced, you know, you're looking at initial phase ones, just environmentals, uh, land survey reports. Um, you're going to have a lot more capital going into it. And then in terms of the development, you know, depending on what your experience is, if it's your first time developing a project, you know, you're probably looking at some sort of private financing unless you're able to bring on a really experienced general contractor who has um, the resume to be able to give strength to a uh, an A lender. Um, there are some unique products out there that allow for acquisition and development on the land. Um, again, those are more geared towards residential properties and um, probably more so owner-occupied type properties as well too, but there are some products out there. In terms of the commercial side, it's it's a completely different ballpark. You know, um, you're going to need to see, like I said, all your typical reports, but also all the uh, costs, budgets, expenses, GCs. Um, you know, they may want cost cost consultancy reports in there as well too. Architectural drawings, like yeah, tear down um, warranty. It gets it gets pretty deep into the rabbit hole of of who's actually building the property and you know what the experience behind it is once you start getting into larger builds. This does not sound like a rookie strategy. <laughs> no, it's definitely not. I mean, honestly, the most lucrative part that you could really and, and least amount of intensive with capital and, and just effort on your behalf is if you had the money, just buying the land and getting it to site plan approval and then finding a developer who wants to come in and take it over. Yeah. Um, you've already taken it from its, you know, its base value and given it that large uplift having it at SPA and, and ready to be developed on. And, you know, there's a huge uplift in that and, and having it ready. So, 
you know, house flipping is one, but you could potentially look at like land flipping as well too, and having it either rezoned or if it's already zoned, like I said, just getting it from raw service to ready to be developed. There's a huge uplift. Yeah. In that. The, the value stems from the highest and best use case of a property. So if oh. for example, you had a piece of land and that land's highest, best use case was a single family dwelling, but you found out a way to be able to get the highest and best use case to high density residential property. And you went through the process with the city of rezoning that property and getting it to the point where a developer could come in and drop a shovel in the ground. That value, you know, sometimes we see 10 times increase in value because that, that developer can now go in and just get it done. So right. we're seeing people turn $500,000 properties into like $3 million properties. It's just, you got to know how to do it. You got to know how to go through the city. You know, there's a handful of different things you have to do and it is decently capital intensive for doing all the different uh, reports and stuff like that. Yeah. If you're, if you're friends with an urban planner, <laughs> we know where development's going to be expanding to and start looking for a cheap piece of land and just sit on it for a few years. I see too many people in the in, in the Facebook groups, you know, just brand new people are like, yeah, I want to get into land development. It's really hard to tell them that like this isn't something you just jump into early. Yeah. There's a lot of research and education you need to do. Do you have a million dollars? <laughs> do you have a million dollars? Oh, I want to do this all owner financing. Yeah. 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 Well, and the biggest mistake a lot of new uh new developers and new builders do is they take that piece of land from five hundred thousand. They get it to SPA or, you know, they, they start to do the work on it to get it ready for development and they take that equity out right away. And that's probably one of the bigger mistakes that you can make because even the developers and, and the development financing companies, they want you to have skin in the game because they don't want to be funding a $4 million project and you have zero equity and you can just walk away when things get difficult, right? So um, we're actually dealing with a development where it's very similar. They took out some of the equity a little prematurely and it, it cause them a little bit of issues trying to find the financing for building. down the road for for the development on the tower yeah. so um just things that you know you you wouldn't really know if you weren't uh, experienced on on developing and there are some costly mistakes that are very appealing obviously that capital is sitting there all of a sudden you've generated a million dollars in equity in the property and who doesn't want you know to be able to take out that money so just knowing when to take out the the equity can be the difference between project moving forward and and you getting 12% financing on your development money. So mm -hmm. I, I obviously I said over owner financing and, um, and that's another thing that people love to bring up too, is that, Oh, I want to get something with the vendor take back mortgage. So that's obviously, it could be an option there where maybe, you know, the seller might be willing to offer leave some money in and as a vendor take back mortgage. Um, though I don't really want to go too complicated for this, for this episode on, on, on VTBs and land development and stuff. But, you know, what about VTBs with residential? Is that still a thing? Is that still possible? Yeah, the coveted VTB. Uh, we yeah. have people reaching out all the time with VTB. VTB is a sweet deal. Like if you are able to negotiate a vendor take back mortgage with a seller and the vendor take back is obviously advantageous to you. I mean, why not take advantage of not having to put capital in, especially if your strategy is a short term strategy to, to lift the value in the property. So, you know, could, like with a residential property, uh, like the majority of big banks won't allow you to use a VTB. So Bill B20 came out, Bill B20 said that anything above 20%, like you, you know, you can't have a VTB in it. Now, credit unions are private banks. So credit unions can do pretty much what they want in regards to financing. So credit unions have a little bit different way of looking at financing than maybe some A banks would. They look at uh, debt service coverage ratios and, you know, how much essentially debt can support it based off of a handful of different variables. And if you were able to get 
your ratios underneath where they would need it to. And you can factor in your monthly payment for your VTB into it and actually get conventional financing with a VTB. Um, you know, a lot of people who are in the multifamily space are looking at that at the moment uh, as an option. And there are ways to obviously be able to get around the high carrying costs for a VTB because sometimes obviously a seller could think it's advantageous. I could make like eight or 9% on this as well as get a big chunk of my money out and I have to wait. Well, if the eight or 9% on that VTB is going to put your monthly payments out to lunch and it's not going to fall within your ratios, you can structure it as like a, a balloon payment either on the front or the back end and lower the overall monthly rate to be able to decrease, you know, the carrying cost of that loan. So the, uh, the, the credit union will, it'll be under their minimum required. So you could actually structure that VTB behind it first. And as long as you have a strategy to be able to refi or take out that piece of debt in a short period of time, whatever, however long the term is, you know, there are ways to get conventional financing with VTBs. That's brilliant. Because <laughs> <laughs> all you hear, all you hear is people saying that, you know, you can't do VTBs anymore with, um, uh, you know, as, as down payments. And, and like you said, the big reason was because, it, well, but there's a few big banks that don't want you to do it, but even the credit unions, um, you know, it puts your debt servicing way over because yeah, 10% you're, I mean, if you're borrowing $60,000, I mean, how much is that going to be monthly? 600, 500 bucks a month. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that. That's that's effing brilliant. And that's going to be a terrific clip for later. <laughs> so I'm just going to make a note of that. That's amazing. I mean, it really just, it comes down to the deal. How does the building debt service it? Um, you know, some credit unions may want you to put 5% of your own cash down, but there are some out there who, as long as it's serviceable, they'll, they'll utilize a whole 25%, 20%, 35% vendor take back, depending on what the ratios are. So it is doable. Even five percent—that's still way better than twenty percent. Yeah, especially in hot markets like you guys got right now in Ontario. Yeah. I mean, huge opportunity. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't—I wouldn't jump on that too quickly in a in a in a flat market like Alberta is right now. I mean, you don't really want to start paying nine percent on on a you know fifteen or twenty percent of your you know, the value of the house because you, I mean, you do your numbers, do your numbers, you know, analyze it properly and make sure that you're not overpaying, and then you end up making nothing or less. But in Ontario or the East Coast or even BC, actually just anywhere other than Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> anywhere with some sort of appreciation yeah. every year. Where the increase is not as flat as the land, we need to be able to. <laughs> naming every province other than Alberta. I'm like, yeah. just yeah. let's call it out. And, and I've seen some super aggressive vendor takebacks. I've seen people get 0% vendor takeback, like yes. two, three, 0%, which is just insane. Um, I mean, like you're you're talking nine, which is which is probably out there, but I honestly see more in the two to five percent than I do five plus in terms of interest rate. So, it's uh, it's it's pretty crazy. And I actually saw the other day, uh, a vendor take back the the vendor wanted to collateralize a piece of equity um, to securitize his, and it helped keep the rate a little bit lower. They got a five percent, um, which is a great strategy. I mean, you're not paying on that and. If you have strength and, and trust in the project that you're going to be able to get it out afterwards, why not collateralize a piece if it means you get, you know, a sub five percent, sub six percent vendor take back? It's good catch. <laughs> yeah, you saw that. That was yeah. coffee that just went all over my desk. Oh no, <laughs> that's okay. The show must go on. <laughs> Where was I? VTBs are awesome. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of different ways, and and I mean. 
you can make a lot of really cool offers to a seller that it could be very beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just understanding the product. You know, if you're able to sell it to the seller, it's, it's a really great product to be able to utilize, to reduce their capital gains on, on what they're going to be making on, on, on their tax that they're going to pay on it. So, you know, if they have a huge amount of equity in the property and having that vendor take back means they get a little bit less up front, but they keep more overall with less tax. Why, who wouldn't want to do that? I mean, I would rather keep more in my pocket, even if it means I get a little bit more on the back end a year later. It's only a year later in most circumstances. You know, why not shift some of that profit to the back end? Absolutely. A savvy seller is going to understand that. Yeah. And then you obviously touched on uh, tax deferral as well. That's huge. Um, you know, especially with, you know, maybe, maybe older investors who are trying to liquidate their portfolio, you don't want to liquidate all your properties at once. Um, you're going to get a huge, it's going to hit your taxes really hard. Yeah. So, so if, you can, can, if you can stagger it, so much, you're going to get a lot of tax savings. 100%. You can also write off all the, all the interest on your loans. So, oh yeah, that's right. If you have an interest only loan, yeah. like you can write it off. Yeah. Essentially, if you're making the cash flow, yeah. it, it doesn't matter. And it, and it does get registered as a private second, technically. So, I mean, you got you got a private second interest only mortgage on a rental property. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, for anyone who's listening, definitely, you know, check out the Finley Mortgage Team if you guys have more questions about using different strategies like this. I mean, you guys know, you know, credit unions and lenders who allow you to do this. So that's huge. Um, so what other tips would you give a new investor or even a seasoned investor when it comes to, you know, mortgage financing? Work with someone who just understands the landscape. Um, you know, who a broker who deals with investors and, and has investor friendly lenders. That's, that's really the key piece. Um, you know, we get guys all the time who wanted to do a burr and got stuck in a five year fixed and, and just didn't know. And now, you know, it's, it's going to cost them $25,000 to get out of that. And, you know, put five percent down on it because they were utilizing a, a secondary uh, residence, and you know when you when you do that and you have a four percent premium on top, and you're really looking at a one percent equity position. You know now you got to build forty percent equity into that property during your birth to be able to get anything out, right? So, um, just having someone who understands what investment products are out there and how to utilize them really makes such a big difference um, yeah. with your financing. I would just say you also have more options than what you think. Like yeah. there are so many options in the market and if a broker tells you there isn't an option, there's an option. Like there's yeah. always an option. There's always, a, there's always a way to get something done. It's how much you want to spend to get it done at the end of the day. Like there, there is always an option. So um, exploring your options, I would say, make sure you're informed, make sure you understand the costs, make sure if you're jumping into a project, if you've never done a large commercial multifamily, like, do you understand how many reports need to be done? You understand the cost. You understand how much it's going to cost your lawyer. Like, you know, lawyer might cost you $10,000. If you're closing privately, it might cost you 20. Like, do you have the capital to be able to play big boy games? So at the end of the day, like just understanding the entirety of the projects you're doing, speak to somebody who knows what they're doing and, you know, kind of assess all your options and don't quit your job. You know, <laughs> just <laughs> don't, don't do it until you talk to your uh, Or unless you have a million dollars in capital to go put on like commercial properties. Sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Don't quit your job because yeah, it's very hard to get properties afterwards. Um, yeah. So, so mortgage, you know, maybe someone who's new to this, you know, they think, Oh, it's, it's okay. I'm going to go to my bank. I've always used my bank. Like, 
Um, you know, I've heard a lot of people say that, oh, well, a mortgage broker is going to charge me to, to help them. Like, how does, do you do mortgage? I know the answer, but, you know, can you explain it? You know, that's uh, yeah. how mortgage brokers, you know, get paid. Sure. Yeah. So a financing banks pay us. So banks yeah. pay us to bring them quality business. So if you're an a lender, no going to you. No, not at all. Actually, I have more access than your bank hat does. Your bank has one set of property, one set of uh, like products. I have access to all the products. So, you know, at the at the end of the day, I'm not going to charge you for you know, getting a mortgage if I can just advise you on which product's going to be best for you and what options there are in the market. You know, there is no cost to you. If anything, you, you have my phone number, you have my direct access. I'm going to answer my phone. I'm going to answer my emails. You know, if you have a question, I'm going to answer it promptly. Like, at the end of the day, your level of service with a broker compared to you know, a bank is bar none, like way, like we blow them out of the water. I, I don't mean to like, sound no, like you can't because I, because I 100% agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Um, B financing, but there's, there's obviously, as I said before, there's some fees involved. There's 1% uh, lender fee and 1% broker fee, depending on obviously the, uh, the lender and the broker that you use. And then usually commercial financing, most commercial uh, lenders don't compensate a broker. Um, so you're probably looking around a 1% for broker fee and then roughly around a one to half a point lender fee, depending on the type of uh, lender you're using. And then private financing is ranged from one to 2% for a broker and one to 2% for a lender, really just depending on the property, the location, how hard it is, the type of financing you're acquiring. Um, so any broker will have a conversation with you before, um, before you incur any charges, or at least any good one will. Anyone, they'll, they'll let you know, like, this is your options. These are what this costs, this is what this costs, this is what this costs. So you shouldn't ever be surprised as to what you know, your cost is going to be. And if you are, you don't have a, like a, a good broker who is transparent. You need to be asked those questions You know, when you're speaking to a broker. This is my solution, what is it gonna cost? And you should always be a, have an upfront answer about that before you complete the transaction. Right, um, so, when an investor is trying to plan for closing costs, is that something that they have to pay out of pocket or is that could all added in, say for the, the B lender, for example, you know, is that get added into the mortgage as, as part of the, uh, the, the fees of the down payment or, or, or sorry, does it get, does it get added into the mortgage funds or? Uh, there's some lenders. Well, so, there's, there's some lenders. If, if there's enough room in the loan to value, they might be able to cap in their fee. So, I mean, if you're looking to get an 80%, loan to value, you know, there's no room for them to cap their fees in. Um, if you're looking to get a 70% loan to value and they can do up to 80, you know, they can potentially look at capping the lender fees in. no, no lender will cap in the mortgage broker fee. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be paid out of pocket, but pretty much everything is, is paid out of pocket. Yeah. So what happens is you, you have two situations, right? You have your purchase situation where you're bringing capital for a down payment. And at that moment, there is no equity to be able to use towards any fees, right? You're bringing money for the down payment and you have to pay for the closing costs. Now, if you are in a refinance situation where you have equity and you're pulling that equity out, you know, you do have cash to play with and you can yeah. reduce fees from that. So if you're refinancing, you know, all the costs can be eaten out of the advance of the loan, whereas on a purchase, you're bringing the funds. So none of the fees are going to be able to be worked into that. Right. Okay, and like you had mentioned earlier, I mean, what's what's the it's, what's the cost of the opportunity? I mean, you, you, what options do you have, right? And and the fact that there are options, it's such a small cost, you know, for you to be able to provide, you know, that connection and, and get that financing. So, yeah. and the great thing about what we do is we don't charge you upfront. There is no upfront cost for our services. It's all about solutions. So if we find you a solution and you close in the transaction, we obviously have completed what we're doing, and you know, we get paid for it. But if we don't, yeah. if we don't do a transaction, we don't get paid. 
So, you know, the quality of service that we provide has to give you a solution for us to be able to make any money. So hmm. you know, we're incentivizing giving you the proper advice to be able to close a transaction. So at, at the end of the day, there is no upfront cost to working with a broker. So you don't have to be worried about you know, uh, a bill at the end of it if it doesn't close. <laughs> right on. Uh, you touched on private financing and I want to ask about that as well. So, so private lenders, is that something you guys have access to? Yeah, we, so we technically specialize with the subprime market. So the B and the private lenders, um, we still do a lot of A stuff when our clients need it, but that's really where our main focus is. So we work with, you know, quite a few different types of private lenders. We work with the mortgage investment companies, um, the mix, you know, they're a little bit more competitive on the, on the rates. Um, uh, you know, they can be around that 5% mark, give or take a little bit. Um, and they can be a little bit more flexible on their fees. Sometimes, sometimes they're a little bit higher. Um, but they, uh, you know, because they're better, federally regulated, you know, they have the shareholders, um, there's a bit more exposure that way. Um, and then we work with the independent private lenders as well too. So, uh, you know, guys who used to be big in the real estate game and just understand the, the landscape liquidated part of their portfolio. You know, now they, now they put it out. Um, and then just like mom and pop type lenders, guys who are just have a little bit of extra spare capital and want to be able to make a little bit of extra passive income. Um, you know, typical independent private guys are looking somewhere between maybe seven, but usually eight to the 10% area. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'd say the most, Typically, we see those privates going out around 8%, um, 2% lender fee. You know, we start our fee at like 2%. And then depending on, you know, we don't like to kill deals over fees. Um, if we've worked with you before multiple, multiple times, you know, we're more than happy to move our, our fee for those. If it's the first time we're working with you, you know, we don't have any private uh, previous experience. We're probably going to charge you 2%. And then as we move forward and doing more business, like I said, we're relationship based. We want to do more business with them. So we're, we're happy to, to help people out when needed, but uh, usually around eight, two and two on the independent private guys. This game's all about relationships. Yeah. I mean, like, really yeah. Um, so what would, when would private money or private lending be a good idea? Like why would someone want to pay 8%, 9%? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it comes back to opportunity cost. So I, I instantly just think of flippers. So guys who are buying a property that is in disrepair, something that a bank won't lend on. And when we see a property that is in a state of disrepair, you know, most investors see dollar signs, but banks just are like, no way, that's not a marketable property. Me, I can't give you any money based off the condition of that property. So oh, collateral. So yeah. So that that's right. So essentially you can get private financing where somebody would still land on the value of the property and what you purchased it at, and they would give you a short-term loan. And we would obviously cater that loan to whatever your strategy is. And you would take that private money. Obviously it's a high carrying cost for a short period of time, but the lift you're going to get on repositioning that property and selling it or burring it out is mm -hmm. much higher than what the overall carrying cost is going to be for that three or four months of your 8% money. Yeah. So it, it, at the end of the day, it's all numbers. It's all just does my bottom line make sense based off my ARV and the overall costs. And once you can wrap your head around, you know, the 8%, like, man, it's a lot of money, but sure, it's a lot of money. But if you're making $200,000 on a flip, it's just an expense on your bottom line. Exactly. So there, there are a handful of people out there who use private money because it's quick, it's efficient. There is no, you know, there isn't a ton of income verification documents. Uh, most of these people are equity based. You know, it, it really is efficient and it's a quick solution to be able to get into properties where a financial institution wouldn't lend on. 
And, and and that's where the majority of our flippers and guys who are just getting into mm-hmm. these off-market properties that aren't in good shape uh, get their funds. Uh, so how long does it typically take to get approved for something like that? So you got a deal, you lock it up. I mean, how long can people expect to, to, to get a yes or a no on something like that? Pretty quick, man. Like it really just comes down to essentially the appraisal if it's needed. You know, some of our some of our lenders work on appraisal based. Some of them have their own realtor and just use an opinion of value. Um, you know, I, I did a private flip in a day and a half one time. Oh. Um, so it was it was pretty quick. You know, they utilized the one lawyer system. So it was basically application funds were transferred and documents were signed. But I'd say on average five, five to seven days. You know, like I said, it really comes down to the appraisal. It, it it's all about uh, two things. One is how fast can your lawyer close and two, how fast can I verify the value of the property? So if right. you can get if your private lender has somebody that they trust or they understand the value of the specific area, which we find a lot of our lenders are area specific because they understand the market. Um, if they are comfortable with the value, then they'll lend based off that value. If they need an appraisal, then it'll take X amount of time. Um, but essentially as fast as the, the lawyers can close is how fast we can close a mortgage. So earlier we were talking about the fact that, you know, maybe a house is not in habitable condition and though you're buying it for say $250,000, you know, is it really worth two hundred fifty thousand dollars? So, is is a private lender going to look at uh, you know the appraisal of the property, or are they gonna, do they take into account what's being done as well, like what like what they're planning on doing? Great question. So we have two types of lenders. So we actually have a lender that lends off the ARV value. Mm-hmm. Um, that lender, uh, it's our twenty thousand down product. If anybody hasn't heard of it, um, essentially you just need twenty thousand dollars down as a down payment, but you need to verify the after repair value of the property. Meaning um, you have to give us quotes. Those, those quotes are for renovations. Those renovations are going to outline what you're going to do to the property to get it to target ARV value. Um, and then you need to give us a handful of comparables that verify that value based off the quotes you've given us. Um, our lender has a specific internal system that they do to verify that value. And once they verify it and you can show that you have the capacity to be able to do the renovations, you know, they'll give you the loan at like $20,000 down to do the flip. Now, the caveat to it is it's a decently it's a decently high interest rate. It's fifteen point five percent annualized. The six month completely open term, but the majority of our clients who are in this are using it for short term flips. So the overall carrying cost for like two or three months, yeah. compared to having all that dormant capital or like twenty percent of dormant capital in a project, they can scale two, three, four projects at a time to make way more money. So, you know, we we have so many different products out there for you know that each different lender. And, and that's the beauty of private lending is because these guys can be flexible and offer products and solutions in a market that needs it. So, you know, a lot of people just have like a negative stigma around private money. It's just like, oh, it's so expensive. Why would anybody use that? There are true products being made out there for people who are making a ton of money using them. There's, I mean, so many people, you know, don't get into burrs and flips early on because they just don't have the capital. They don't have the 20 or 25%. They don't have the cost of renovations you know, hundred thousand on top of that. You you need quite a bit of money to kind of get involved in flips and bursts. Yep. Not There's, anymore. Yeah, no. Apparently. Uh, <laughs> and we can do it in Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Like, thank you for saying that because, you know, people are going to ask, people are yeah. going to ask, is that an only an Ontario thing? That's, that's huge. It's an amazing yeah. product. And if you um, really wanted to, they'll collateralize free equity and you could really get into it for absolutely no money down. If you have enough collateral equity, they'll give you the renovations. They'll give you the down payment. And you can just use that equity as a line of credit, essentially. So, like, you can really get into a, a, a flip for no money down. And 
and just paid all out on the back. As so. long as long as you know you you qualify. So there's a handful of things that we look at. You have to qualify for once per year. We take a look at your overall financial situation and make sure you don't owe any money to the government. And then after that, we have an internal process that we make sure that you, you know, are qualified for the product. But you only have to qualify once per year, and you can do as many as you want in the calendar year. Interesting. Yeah. That's uh, that's very very interesting because a lot of people ask questions about where do I get private money, and they just assume that they have to still go and start asking their aunts and uncles and uh, our friends, you know, will you give me an RSP mortgage? <laughs> but there's seriously good uh, stuff. And that, uh, thank you for sharing that. I was not expecting that at all because I'm making notes for myself. Uh, <laughs> Don't spill coffee on them. <laughs> Push, the coffee Push it away. Um, what about burrs? Um, how have things changed with burrs lately? Is, is, you know, I'm starting to hear that, you know, Lenders aren't allowing refinancing right away. They're, they they want to see they want to see a little bit of time, upwards of a year, before they'll allow uh, refinance. So if someone's you know buying a property with private money, high interest private money, and then they go and try and refinance three months later when they've done the improvements, you know what's the story with that? Yeah, I, correct. I think the big thing just to like caveat everything that we talk about is re- everything in real estate in terms of financing is. Very little of it is very black and white, um, mm-hmm. is very fluid. So, you know, yeah, most lenders would probably want you to be in the building and have ownership six to six months to a year before they would really consider doing a refinance. Um, some lenders who would do a refinance sooner, you know, they may only do the refinance based off of the purchase value. So you're essentially just switching out the rate at that point from an interest only into a more favorable principal and interest type payment. Not getting any um, capital. Yeah, that. you wouldn't get any equity out, but you can get into a more favorable rate. Right. Um, and then we have lenders who will consider, you know, a month out and, and do a refinance with equity takeout. You know, I've done one at three months before. Um, when you're doing a refinance out of a private mortgage, some of these lenders want everything directed. So there is no like, hey, I'm just going to pull out $200,000 and put it in my checkings account. They, they want to see what you're going to use it for. You know, are you paying off your renovations? Like, you know, where are the funds going? Um, so they'll have it lawyer directed. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, one, of, one of the things I'm coaching most of my people who are doing flips to do is take some photos like before. Take all the photos of your place before you renovate it and then take photos after. Like one of the one of the sticking points for most of these lenders is how did you increase the value of a property by $100,000 in three months? Like, like, why should I give you money? An appraiser gave me an appraisal on the value three months ago, and it was this, and now it's three hundred thousand, like a hundred thousand dollars more. Like, prove it to me. So, if you have the photos and you can make a case about your capital expenditure into it, save your receipts, save your photos, make a case around the fact of how you created the value in that property, mm-hmm. and you're gonna have a better chance of being able to refinance. Yeah, and if you can utilize a line of credit or a HELOC, something that we can direct funds to it we can pay off that two hundred thousand dollar line of credit or that HELOC with the funds versus you know if you're looking for a refinance right away you may not be able to put two hundred thousand dollars in your pocket so if you can utilize a line of credit and have that as you know a vehicle to to hold that capital on we can pay that off with the funds and it's probably a lot easier than having to direct funds into your checking account two or three months afterwards so that's just silly technicality yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you can directed funds to like a financial advisor as well, too, and then do what you want from it as there as well. Some lenders allow you to do that. So there's, 
Yeah, I don't make the rules. I just follow them. <laughs> exactly. But I, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm soaking up all this creativity. It's just some, some smart stuff. Some smart stuff. Appreciate it. We've, uh, we've run into a handful of situations. So we just, we learn from the, uh, the, the situations that we've been in. Yeah. Um, we, we, we talked about, in, I, I made a note of this earlier a couple of times. We talked about interest rate differentials a couple of times and, um, you know, everyone assumes let's just go with the lowest interest rate, five-year fixed, you know, they said this is the best one. And then, you know, they try and go and refinance or they try and sell their property. Um, you said $25,000, which isn't too far off these days with how low interest rates are, you know, yep. compared to where they were a couple of years ago. So how is the interest rate differential calculated? Do you mind sharing that? Yeah, you need a second episode. There's a handful of different ways that it's calculated. So some lenders use different uh, different rates to calculate it, where some lenders use their contract rate. So it just really depends on what lender you're using and how they calculate it. But to dumb it down, like I could get really technical about it, but essentially the lender is going to find how much interest you should have paid them over the term of the loan, and they're going to charge you that. Yeah, because um, they want to get paid. They locked in on a contract with you. Exactly. That's that, that's correct. Uh, it's really important to understand the total cost of breaking your loan if you have a specific strategy. So if you, you know, variable rate mortgages are definitely more favorable when it comes to cost to break your loan. So if you do have a strategy to tap into that equity partially down the term of your loan, it would make sense to take a variable option. Yeah, for sure. And also um, just jumping in quick too, like paying attention to the market our rates increasing or de uh, decreasing because it basically comes off of the difference of what your rate is versus what that rate would have been. So if you're exiting out in your first year, they're going to take a look at what your five-year rate is and then basically take a look at what a four-year rate would be or what that difference left out is. If the rates are increasing or rates are decreasing, that difference, the interest rate difference is going to be drastically different depending on which way rates are moving. So you may have a huge interest rate differential. You may have not as huge interest rate differential. It all depends on where yeah. rates are going in the in the future. So, yeah, and from my understanding as well, I mean, if you if you locked in at three point five and all the interest rates are down at one point five right now or whatever, you know what I mean? They're losing a lot of money having to reinvest that money into a much yep. cheaper interest rate when they had you locked in at three point five. So they're going to get what they're owed. Oh yeah. Um, so just make sure that you you plan ahead. If you if you think you're keeping this long term and not change anything, go five year fix for sure. For, you, for sure, yeah. You lock lock in at that low rate, but yeah. just under understand you know, what what loan you're locking yourself into, right? And, and what that's going to do to your ability down the road. Uh, I'm going to extend on that a little bit, and just for a, a rookie investor, not necessarily a savvy investor, but is there any point in ending your fixed term to go lock in on a much lower price? Well, I had it at four percent. Now I can get it at two percent. Is it better to do that? It, it you have to take a look at the calculation, right? Like how much is it going to cost you to break your loan? You're going if you're refinancing, it's going to cost you an appraisal. It's going to cost you a lawyer fee. And how much over the term of your loan are you going to save locking in at a lower interest rate than what you have now? So if you factor in total APR of your refinance and that cost, you know, if it saves you money, do it. If it, if it doesn't save you money, you know, it's not as, it's not as simple as just saying, oh, this is the interest rate. This is the interest rate. People don't understand it's going to be a cost involved in being able to restructure your debt. So you know, understanding the overall cost of it and uh, it, it, and then comparing them is probably going to be your best bet. Yeah, and then are you going to break it again a year later when <laughs> the rates go down again? Because you're really going to pay another twenty thousand dollars in fees to break it again. And now yeah. what? You spent sixty thousand dollars in the last two years to get out of your mortgage. Like you're not saving any money at that point. So yeah, 
Yeah, I, um, I'm a bit of a nerd. I mean, like when I, when I started looking into real estate investing, I thought, uh, you know, I need to know everything about mortgages because I need to be the experts and I need to be making, because, you know, when you're in control of everything else in your business, mortgages is, 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 is a big part of the financials you should be planning. But as much as I tried, I just realized that like, it's not even worth it That's because so it changes so often. It's much better to have someone on your team you know, someone who understands investments, someone who understands mortgages that can just keep up on it. And then you guys take care of that shit because I can't I can't keep up on it. It's it's a it's a full time job. It is yeah. a very liquid situation, always moving, depending on you know, the climate of the financial climate of, of Canada at the end of the day. So, you know, the government will create policy and take away policy based off of their expectation of what's going to happen with the economy. So. You know, somebody, your broker needs to be up to date as to what's going on, how possibly things are going to happen in the future. And, you know, having that foresight to be able to advise is your the most important bet. Uh, most, I, had, I was talking to a client yesterday. He's like, I realized very quickly that most mortgage brokers aren't created equally. And it's, it's true. Yeah. Know, some brokers are really good at one thing. Some are good at another. So maybe do like a little bit of an interview process when you, uh, when you're looking for a broker to ensure that they do understand uh, that your strategy or what your strategy is and what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you should definitely be open and transparent with your mortgage broker about what it is that you're planning on doing long-term. Um, yes. cause you guys are going to like, yeah, we may have a plan right now, but things may change and you're going to be aware of that. So you're going to be able to, to, you know, to, to adapt uh, on the fly for, you know, for the, for the investors. So, um, yeah, definitely when you're choosing a mortgage broker, do interview them and make sure they know, what they're doing, make sure that they know what you are planning on doing. Mm -hmm. And um, that way you're set up for success. success. Um, one last thing before we start winding down, I wanted to, I, I had to ask you guys about, because we talked about it before, um, is bankruptcy. And I'm curious, you know, there, I've talked to a few investors in the past that, um, you know, some things happened in their life, you know, they may have had to do a consumer proposal, they may have had to do bankruptcy, something happened. And, and a lot of those cases, you know, they kind of hit that rock bottom and now they've turned their life around and said, I'm never going to have that happen again. I'm going to take control of my life. I'm going to become a real estate investor. But then they go to the broker or the lender and they find out we can't get a mortgage. So what options are available for someone who's, who's ran into something like that? What can they do? Yeah. Yeah. So on the A side, they're a lot more strict with their parameters. And uh, I mean, to take, take a step back, your consumer proposal and bankruptcy typically stay on your credit report for six to seven years, depending on whether you're looking at TransUnion or Equifax. Um, mm -hmm. It's going to be on there long enough that it's going to inhibit your ability to get on the A side. On the alternate side, on the B side, you know, they accept and work with uh, riskier portfolios and, and, and situations. So people who have lower credit or who have just entered out of a, of a uh, bankruptcy or consumer proposal and they've been discharged, they can work with you the next day, um, you know, as long as there wasn't any real estate lost in, in the bankruptcy or, or the consumer proposal, um, okay. you know, they're, they're good to go the next day. As long as you've been discharged and, and you know, you're, you're cleared from that, um, it'll still be on your, your credit bureau, but the B lenders are willing to work with them the next day. So there is minimum credit scores, but it is a lot lower. I think it's about 550. Most of the B lenders are willing to work with um, case by case. They might work with someone lower, but I mean, 550 is a, a pretty low score to be working with. So, and there, and you get the full perks, you know, like you could turn around and potentially get a 2.6% owner occupied, you know, mortgage rate if you just had a, a bankruptcy work on the B side. So, 
are are there any differences in terms as far as like amortizations or down payments or anything like that? Yeah. So you have you can't have an insured mortgage product. So you have to have twenty percent down at least. Um, and you know, terms wise, like most most B lenders offer a thirty year amortization. Um, you're gonna have your prepayment privileges. It's essentially just gonna be the exact same mortgage as you would get with a regular bank, except the rate's a little bit higher. Um, obviously, they most of the rates are scaled based off of credit score. So obviously, if you're when you just went through a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, you know, you're not gonna have the most favorable rates, but you are gonna be able to find a solution. But there are options, is what you're saying. There are options, yeah, yeah, definitely. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for clarifying that. And um, I want to thank you guys like so much for everything you guys shared. This is uh, like I, I kind of had a, an idea where we we're going today, but then you guys dropped like a, a crap ton of nuggets. So uh, I made lots of notes for myself. And uh, and yeah, thank you so much for um, for sharing all that. If anyone is looking to get in touch with you guys um, about anything we talked about today or any questions, how do they uh, how do they reach you? Yeah, so you can hit us up on Instagram at the Finlay team. We have a YouTube channel, the Finlay Mortgage Team. And if you just Google us, we have a phone number that you can reach out to us and give us a call. Awesome. Awesome. And obviously, you guys are all over social media as well. I mean, you guys got some great content on YouTube and everything else. So um, check them out. And uh, yeah, so thank you, guys. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Aaron. And, um, and thank you, everyone, for listening.